Let's pray together. Father, we pray that by your word now, you would grip our hearts and cause us to feel the, the glory, the opportunity that we have to abide in Christ. And Lord, we pray that his word would so abide in us that we might abide in him. And we pray that thereby he would be our shepherd, the one who cleanses us, the one who teaches us, the one who by the Spirit leads us through all the difficulties, the trouble, and the tribulation that we face in this world, that we might be one with you and one with one another. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the joy of following Christ in his sacrificial self-giving. We ask that you would do all this by the power of your word as your spirit works among us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as you know, we have been making our way through the epistle to the Hebrews, and in some ways that's like climbing Mount Everest. And um, the circumstances of my life since the beginning of December or so, since Thanksgiving or so, have uh, taken me deep into the Gospel of John, which I feel like I've strapped on the scuba, scuba gear and uh, gone diving into the depths of the Pacific Ocean. And that task has been so exhausting that, and, and so time-consuming that I've had no time for the climb up Mount Everest. So because of that, until I finish this project on John, Lord willing, we are going to be in the Gospel of John. So I would invite you to turn with me to John chapter 12 this morning, and we're, we're mainly going to be looking at John chapter 12, verses 20 through 29, but in preparation for looking at that passage, I would like to think with you about the contents of John chapters 12 through 17, and as we as we start to, uh, to think together about John 12 through 17, um, I just want to pose this question, which um, tonight I would, in, I would ask you to pray for me. I have an opportunity to speak to a, a group of students at FCA, which has had me reflecting on my own experience uh, playing sports in high school and college. And, and I've been thinking about the way that in those years I was searching out the question of the meaning of life. What is life about? And then related to that, how is it supposed to be lived? What is the meaning of life and how is it supposed to be lived? And I think that those two questions, if you'll think about those questions, they will actually be answered from these chapters of the Gospel of John. But before we think directly about them, I would like to put one more question before you here at the outset of this new year. And, and that is, to what great endeavor... Will you commit yourself in 2023? What are you going to give yourself to in 2023? And I want to propose that you should give yourself to this. You should give yourself to what I just prayed for, which is kind of the thesis statement of this sermon, which is also a sort of summary statement for John 12 through 17. And, and, and this is sort of like a, uh, if you think of the earth with its core and then its layers out to the crust, or if you think of like an onion with those layers, 
We're going to start at the center of the onion and work our way out, okay? At the center of the onion is the idea of abiding in Christ. You should commit yourself to this in 2023, abiding in Christ. And this is coming from John 15, as you know, verses 1 through 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And then he he commands his disciples to abide in him. And that central core is surrounded at the end of John 15 and in chapter 14 with trouble. John chapter 14 opens and closes with Jesus saying to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. Bad things are about to happen. Jesus is about to be arrested. Then he's going to be crucified. And and they are going to face persecution for the rest of their lives. And he says to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. That's chapter 14. Chapter 15 at the end, you know, that's where he says to them, if they hated me, they will hate you also. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And that core is what preserves them through the trouble and the persecution. Abiding in Christ through the troubles. And then if you think of chapters 13 and 16, in these two chapters, the Lord Jesus is really shepherding his people. What he does at the beginning of chapter 13 is he shepherds them by cleansing them, symbolically uh, cleansing them. They've, they've, he tells them, you are already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. So their faith in his word has brought about their cleansing. But as he washes their feet, it's as though he symbolically applies to them, them external, externally what he has done for them internally. And then in the rest of chapter 13, he warns them, prepares them for the way that Judas is going to betray him and the way that Peter is going to deny him. So he's shepherding them in the action of cleansing them and in in the instruction that he gives to them. And that's matched by chapter 16, where the whole chapter, the Lord Jesus is telling them what they can expect. He's going away, but it's good for them that he's going away because he's going to send the Spirit to them. And the Spirit is going to convict the world of sin. And I think these these ideas are all related because what's going to happen is the disciples are going to be made Christ-like. And in the same way that the Lord Jesus was persecuted and then suffered for doing what is good, exposing the unrighteousness of the world as the disciples abide in Christ and endure persecution and suffering and trouble and tribulation and are preserved by the Spirit, The power of the Spirit is going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And the Spirit, meanwhile, is going to be leading the disciples into all truth. So the Lord Jesus is shepherding his disciples, preparing them for his death and resurrection. And then outside that, in chapter 12 and chapter 17, and this is where we'll we'll be today, um, what he he speaks of in chapter 12 is his looming death. And, And I would invite you to look at John chapter 12, and look at verse 23, where he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then you know, we, we had as our call to worship this morning, John 17, 1, where in 17, 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And, and these outer sections of this part of the Gospel of John are focused on this self giving of the Lord Jesus, his sacrificial death, and and the way that it gives life. And and then he's calling his disciples to follow him in this. And what he's trying to teach his disciples goes something like this. If you embrace this way of living, if you live as I have lived, 
you will become someone who has joy in laying down your life for other people. And that will change everything for you. You will go from being a self-centered, self-focused, selfish person to being someone who delights to serve others, who delights to see others rejoicing in the Lord, who looks for ways to serve other people. That's what will happen. And then he says things like this, my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. He's talking about the transforming power of this new approach to life that really, you could put in other words by saying, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself daily and take up his cross and follow me. And then you could supply the words, and my joy will be in you, and your joy will be complete. Think of the author of Hebrews. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. This is what Jesus is calling his disciples to. And he says, if you do this, if you live this way, look at what he says in John chapter 14 in verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, this is where this comes from. It comes from loving Christ. You love Christ, and so you treasure the words of Christ, and you abide in him thereby. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Essentially, live as I have lived. This is what he's calling them to. As John 13, he washes their feet. As I have washed your feet, so you must wash one another's feet. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. That's what I'm doing for you. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him. It's an astonishing transition. You love me. You keep my word. My father will love you. It's not a a you earn the Father's love, but it is a dynamic that God delights to come to those who give themselves away for others. God delights in those who are Christ-like. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. And these next words are just astonishing. Jesus says in John 14, 23, and we will come to him, the Father and the Son, Come to the one who loves Jesus, who keeps his word, who is loved of the Father. We will come to him and make our home with him. Another way of saying this is, you will be the temple of the Holy Spirit. You will be the dwelling place of God on earth. Where does this come from? This comes from abiding in Christ and being shepherded by him through the troubles of this world, and understanding that it is his self-giving, sacrificial love for others that brings this about. So what is the meaning of life? The meaning of life is knowing God. How do we live it? By abiding in Christ and being shepherded by him through our difficulties, and experiencing this transformation into his image and likeness so that we delight to live as he lived, to love as he loved. So that's a quick summary of John 12 through 17. And I would invite you now to look with me at John chapter 12, and we will work through the beginning of this section by looking together at John chapter 12, verses 20 through 29. 
And in the same way that I've suggested that there's a a central core for John 12 through 17, which is John 15, 1 through 15. And then there are these, these layers that go out from that central core to the outer crust of John 12, 20 through 50, and the whole of chapter 17. So also here in 12, 20 through 29, there's also a kind of concentric, uh, cir- uh, uh, concentric layers, concentric circles that, that move out from the center. But what we're going to do is, is start at verse 20 and work our way down through verse 29. So look with me at at verse uh, 20. As we approach this, let me just observe that in the the build-up to this, um, what has happened immediately before this is uh, in chapter 12, Mary has anointed Jesus, and and he said in verse 7, leave her alone. This is when Judas objects to the anointing of Jesus. He says, leave her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. So he knows He's about to die, and, and the anointing at Bethany was in preparation of that. And then in, in, the, in the verses that follow, starting in verse 12, he has triumphantly entered Jerusalem. And his audacity and courage ought to be just inspiring, awe-inspiring and glorious to us. Because what he does is he says, I am now going to enact what was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9. So he tells those disciples to go get that donkey and bring it to him, and he rides it into Jerusalem and enacts uh, Zechariah chapter 9. And that brings us to this passage where in verse 20 we read, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And, And this is going to be a turning point in the gospel. And the fact that these Greeks now come to Jesus, it's like it flips the switch for him. It's as though, as, as the, the gears of history are grinding forward, they've reached the place where Genesis 12, verse 3, all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you. And Isaiah 11, verse 10, uh, uh, he will be a signal for the nations. It's, it's like that gear has finally turned. And Jesus sees that gear turned. And whereas to this point in the gospel, he's been saying, My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Now the Greeks come, verse 21, these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come. It's as though the the coming of these Gentiles, these Greeks, to him signal that the moment has arrived. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. We'll come back to this idea in just a moment, what it means for the Son of Man to be glorified. Here I just want to say he's talking about the cross. He's talking about the glory that will be achieved as he is crucified, as his flesh is torn, as his blood is shed, as his body is exposed in naked shame to the public. He's he's talking about being glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 24. These words are so magnificent and so thought-provoking, and I want to urge you to ponder them. I want to urge you to write these words on the tablet of your heart and live by them. Verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat... And just to be clear, he's the grain of wheat, falls into the earth and dies. 
That's what's about to happen. He's about to be crucified and buried. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, before we go on, um, I want to give credit to Tom. Tom stimulated my thinking on this. Um, he, he, he pointed out to me one time in a conversation, he said, you know, uh, in Genesis chapter 1, we read about these trees bearing fruit with seed according to their kinds. And, and it's as though the Lord has, has inspired Moses to include this description of these seeds that have to die in order to bear fruit. And then in Genesis 3.15, He uses the same term seed when he talks about the seed of the woman as though the seed of the woman might also have to die in order to bear fruit. And and as you continue through the Pentateuch, when you get to the book of Leviticus, um, you're probably aware of the fact that when, um, when life fluids leave the body, so when seed leaves a man's body, that process renders him unclean. And the rationale seems to be because the life fluids are no longer in the body, they've left the body, they're now dead. And and so because the life fluids have left the body and he's come into contact with those dead things, he is rendered unclean thereby. And, and, you know, a, a period of time outside the camp or something like that has to bring about his cleansing. The point is, even the man's seed, it's as though ideologically... Uh, theologically, it dies in order to bear fruit in the new life when the seed is, uh, when it fertilizes the egg. So, so this concept of death giving new life, I think is, is in Genesis 1, it's in Genesis 3, and I think it's in uh, the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter 15, verse 16, you can, you can read about that. And now Jesus is saying that this is what's going on with his death and resurrection, The seed has to die in order to give life, in order to bear fruit. And then Jesus takes this and he applies it to his followers in verse 25. And what he says in verse 25 is just another way of saying, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. Look at verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now let's work through that phrase by phrase. Let's start with the beginning of verse 25 there. Whoever loves his life loses it. And and I want to tell you first what I don't think this is talking about. I don't think this is talking about a Psalm 1 kind of person relishing the goodness of God in their Psalm 1 kind of life, okay? In other words, this is not talking about your enjoyment of Scripture and your enjoyment of walking with God in obedience and abiding in Christ and worshiping Him. That's not, what's going, that's not what he's talking about when he says whoever loves his life in this world. He's talking about worldliness. He's saying if you think about life... And what you relish is sin or rebellion or yourself, you're going to lose it. If you think about life and you think, I want things my way, you're going to lose it. You're not going to have it. If you think about life and you think, let's say you're a young man, video games, (laughs) you're going to lose it. 
You're not going to have life. If you think, porn, that's what I live for, you're not going to have life. You're going to lose it. If you're a young lady and your attitude toward things like submission to male authority, I'm going to do my thing, you're going to lose it. In other words, if life for you is, is, is found, or you think it's found, in rebellion against what God commands, you are going to lose your life. If you love yourself, essentially, and your sin, you're going to lose your life. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. So when he goes on in verse 25 and says, and whoever hates his life in this world, he's saying, if you hate your sin, you, you hate worldliness, you hate disobedience, you hate the rebellion that arises in your heart, you hate the, the failure that you can't help but stumble into, you hate the brokenness of the world, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You know, another way to say this is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's what he's saying right here. Same thing. And then when he goes on and he says in verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. He's saying, if, if, if you're going to be my servant, you're going to be like me, the greatest of all who will be the servant of all. That's what he does when he washes his disciples' feet. He's calling his followers to Christ-like, sacrificial, self-giving. It's like he's saying, I'm a grain of wheat. I'm about to fall in the, wet, in the ground and die. Do likewise. Be a grain of wheat. Give up your life. Gladly throw yourself into the tomb that you might bear fruit. He says, my servant, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. My servants will follow me. And then, you know, this is a lot like what we just saw in John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, John 14, 23, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him. Listen to these words here in John 12, 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. You'll be with me. This is how you abide in Christ. You embrace his word, and then you live out his way of living, and you experience his presence. And, and whereas in 1423, he says, um, my father will love him. Here he says, um, there my servant will be also. And then at the, the last clause of verse 26, if anyone serves me, the father will honor him. The path to being loved by the Father, to being honored by the Father, is the path of the way, the truth, and the life. That's who Jesus is. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. You want to be loved by the Father? You want to be honored by the Father? The way, the truth, and the life, that's the path. And that's the path of be a grain of wheat. Fall into the earth and die. Give up your own agenda. Give up your, your selfish concern for what you want the way you want it and embrace the Lord. Embrace this Christ-like, sacrificial, self-giving. That doesn't mean that you, don't have to, that, that you have to surrender all ambitions. It does mean that all your ambitions get transformed. 
All your ambitions become ambitions for the Lord, ambitions for his kingdom, ambitions for his cause. It'll change everything. So I think that the center, the dead center, the core of this passage is verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And that, that central statement is framed by verses 24 and 26. Verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So being a grain of wheat and dying to bear fruit is like following Jesus becoming the dwelling place of God in Christ by the Spirit and being honored of the Father. And then those statements, verses 24 and 26, are surrounded by statements about the hour and the glory. So verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, is now going to be be matched by verses 27 and 28. So look with me at verse 27. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Why is his soul troubled? He knows what's about to happen. They are about to rip the flesh off his back with the cat of nine, nine tails. They are about to literally beat him to a bloody pulp. He knows that's coming. And then they're going to drive the stakes through his wrists and through his feet. And then they're going to pierce him with a spear. They're going to kill him. And it's going to be horrifically painful. And it's going to be publicly shameful as he is exposed, probably completely naked to the eyes of all. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Look at what he says. But for this purpose... I have come to this hour. What you see about Jesus here is that he knows why he's alive. He knows what he's living for, so he knows what he's dying for. What are you living for? What are you dying for? What what great cause are you giving yourself to in 2023? And, And again, I want to call you to abide in Christ. Be shepherded by him through your troubles. To embrace this Christ-like, self-sacrificial offering up of yourself so that you can be united to God and united with his people. For this purpose I have come to this hour. He says there in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Now, we've got to think for a moment, what in the world is he talking about? He is about to be crucified, and he's saying, Father, glorify your name. How is he going to be glorified as he is crucified? Well, this is what God did when Christ was crucified. God took the most shameful death that a human being could die, and he made it gloriously life-giving. The grain of of wheat fell into the ground, and it, and it bore beautiful fruit. 
the punishment that was reserved for selfish rebels. Why does Rome crucify people? They crucify people because they're, they're an obstacle to the Roman Empire and its agenda because they're, they're selfish and they're criminal and they're dangerous and they're destructive. The punishment resolved, reserved for selfish rebels became the display of others-centered obedience. It's, it's, it's almost like, I mean, I'm not a big Star Wars fan, but it's almost like the Death Star being blown up from the inside as, as Jesus takes the worst form of death reserved for the worst form of crim- criminal and, and he just turns the whole thing inside out because he's the most righteous person living out the most obedient life And he's undoing all the reasons that God's wrath is on the world. So the cross, God is glorified as Jesus is crucified because the cross is where Rome displayed the might of its empire as as a warning to anyone that would rebel against them. This is what we do to people that stand against us. And that cross where they displayed their might became the little stone that crushed it. You know the vision in Daniel? You've got this big statue, and then you've got those feet that seem to symbolize the, the, the empire of Rome. And a little stone crushes those feet, and the whole thing crumbles. That's what God did at the cross. And God also overcame Satan's rebellion against him. Satan is trying to subvert the whole world that God created. And God overcomes Satan's rebellion with Christ's submission. Jesus is completely submitted to the will of his Father. God overcame human sin. This is why he's being crucified. This is why the world is broken. This is why there's death in the world. God overcame human sin with Christ's obedience. And at the same time, God paid the debt of sin. What's the debt of sin? The wages of sin is death. God paid the debt of sin with the death of Christ. The seed fell into the earth, and it died, but it did not abide alone. Because the Lord Jesus is teaching these people and saying to them, whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And if anyone would serve me, he must follow me. And it worked. Here we are. Let's continue here in verse 28. Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And that's what's about to happen. The the Father is about to glorify his name through the death of the Son. But on this occasion, it's almost like what we read about earlier when in Exodus chapter 19, verse 19, as the old covenant is inaugurated, the Lord is, is coming down on Mount Sinai and Moses spoke. And you remember what the text says next. In Exodus 19, 19, God answered him in thunder. Look at this. Then a voice, middle of verse 28, came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. It's almost like they're saying, here we are at Mount Sinai. Because as you know, God delivered the law to the people of Israel through an angel. Galatians 3, 19. Hebrews 2, Acts 7. 
It was through angels that the law was put in place. And thunders rolled when God revealed himself at Mount Sinai. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. So in the same way that the old covenant inauguration was characterized by these things, here come the Greeks, the the people that are going to participate in the new covenant. And here we're, we're on the cusp of the making of the new covenant. And we have this new Sinai moment. So what does this passage call us to? Well, it calls us to Christ-likeness, doesn't it? That's your application. Go and do likewise. Go love as he loved. Go serve as he served. And if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus, the, we've got good news for you and bad news for you. And, and the, the bad news, it may sound like bad news, but it's really good news. There's a there's paradox at the heart of Christianity. The bad news is you're going to have to hate your life in this world. You're going to have to repudiate all those sins that you love. You're going to have to turn away from your desire to live for yourself in your own way. But that's actually good news because that's the path to joy. That's the path to freedom. That's the path to life. If you embrace that path, you will become somebody who lives for other people. Somebody who lives for other people because you love other people. Somebody who lives for other people because you love for other people because you love God. That's the good news. This can happen to you by faith in Christ. You can be made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 10.13 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're here and you're thinking to yourself, I can't do this. I can't love like Jesus. I can't repudiate my selfish desires. You know what? You're right. You are exactly right. But God can transform your heart. You must call on his name. You must cry out to him for salvation. He will change you. And then, just as some other points of application, just thinking in terms of these chapters... John 13, he's going to wash his disciples' feet. And he's going to say to those disciples, you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. If you will believe the word of Jesus, you will be cleansed by Jesus. So there's a point of application. Be cleansed by Christ by faith. Trust Christ, be cleansed. Believe the word, experience cleansing. And then... He commands his disciples in John 15, abide in me. And I would encourage you to just lock on to John 15, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So if his words abide in us, we will want what he wants. And our prayers will be answered because we will pray for his purposes. And then finally... I would encourage you to be shepherded by the Lord Jesus in pursuit of the joy of self-sacrificial, self-giving love, led by the Spirit, inhabited by the Father and the Son, and united to other believers. And that last part, united to other believers, I think this is really what Jesus is getting at in John 17 when when he prays over and over to the Father, I pray that they may be one as we are one. That oneness is a self-sacrificial, self-giving love 
kind of oneness. So we experience this oneness with God as we pursue Christ-likeness, and that commitment to Christ-likeness will result in oneness with one another. If you ask me, what is this like? What is it like to live this way? I'm going to point you to the various things that Jesus says in John's gospel. It's like being a branch, John 15, that's connected to the vine, right? And the the branch gets its life-giving nourishment from the vine. Christ is the vine. It's like being a sheep that's shepherded by the good shepherd, John 10. I am the good shepherd. It's like, John 8, walking in the light. Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. It's like eating and drinking. Jesus says in John 6, he says, the one who comes to me will never hunger. And the one who believes in me will never thirst. That's what it's like to follow Christ. It's like being a child of the Father. To those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. It's like being a fruit-bearing seed. He says, he says, you will bear fruit to his disciples. They will bear fruit because they are seed that is going to fall into the ground and die. They're going to die to themselves. They're going to take up their cross daily. So finally, it's like being a Christian. It's like being a follower of Jesus. That's what it's like. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you have been at work. And I pray, Lord, that some in this room are resolving themselves right now to repent, to turn away from their sin, to give themselves completely to Jesus. I pray, Lord, that some who have never done this before would be be doing it right now, would be committing themselves to you, would be pledging themselves calling on your name, crying out to you for salvation. And Father, for so many others, I pray that you would be causing connections to happen between all these different things that the Lord Jesus says. His promise of of being the one who came that we might have life and have it abundantly. Lord, make us understand that abundant life is this Christ-like, sacrificial, self-giving life. And Lord, when he said, that what he wants for us is for us to have his joy and have it to the full. Help us to understand that it's the joy set before him that we might too scorn its shame. And Lord, when he said in John 16, 24, that we would ask whatever we wish of you, the Father, through him in his name, that our joy might be full. Lord, teach us that what we're to ask for is Christ-likeness. A greater experience of abiding in Him. Greater confidence in being shepherded by Him. That we might, with more abandon, give ourselves up for Him as He gave himself Himself up for us. Lord, teach us these things and be glorified in us, we pray. 
just as you were glorified as, as Christ was crucified. We ask all this in his name. Amen.